I, I think for me personally, and for a lot of the members of the Black community here at Goldman Sachs, these things are just extremely difficult for us to process. And so you'll be here trying to show up, trying to be your best work self. And then at times you don't even know if it matters, right? You're sitting in a Zoom call and you're talking about the thing that you're talking about. You're trying to service your clients, but then there is this backdrop and this like cloud hanging over you about all of the other things that are happening in the world. And you just don't know if you really care about bonds at that moment in time. Welcome to our weekly exchanges at Goldman Sachs Market Update. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We recognize it's definitely not the week to be going about business as usual, talking only about what's going on in financial markets, with demonstrations and protests taking place across the United States and around the world. We wanted to pause to comprehend the pain, the anger, and sort out where we go from here. Part of that exercise is creating some space to hear more from some of our Black colleagues. Today, we're joined by Fred Baba, a managing director in our Global Markets Division. Fred wrote a very raw and honest and direct email this week to his colleagues about his experience as a Black man in America since his family immigrated here in 1990. That email was shared all around the firm, shared on our internet, and Fred is joining us here today to talk about that, but more importantly, how he's balancing his day job against today's backdrop and what he recommends we at Goldman Sachs can do to support our coworkers, neighbors, and friends in a sustainable and prolonged way. Welcome to the program, Fred, and thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Jake. So let's start with a quick intro. Um, how long have you been at the firm and, uh, and what's, your, what's your focus here? Uh, yeah, so I joined the firm six years ago within the rates business. Um, and so I work on our rates systematic market making trading desk. So we focus on electronic trading and liquid rates basically across the globe, but primarily focused within my local team here on US rates. Okay, so it's been a busy time in that space for sure. You and I talked earlier this week and you were talking just about how exhausting uh, 2020 has been on the trading floor, even before the recent events. Give us a summary of what the years felt like from your desk when you were physically in the office and, and now remote. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about what we do within the Global Markets Division, we engage in and facilitate risk transfer, right? So when clients have risk that they want or risk that they don't want, they come to us and we facilitate that process. And so Sometimes it's extremely boring and you're kind of just waiting for something to happen. And then sometimes it feels like everything in the world was on fire and it's just this whole big overwhelming thing. And one of the things that we probably don't even think about, like the first event of this year, from my perspective, was the killing of General Soleimani. Um, This was the Iranian Revolutionary Guard General, um, which kicked off a armed conflict between the US and Iran. Fortunately, that conflict was somewhat short-lived, but it was just this moment where no one really knew what was happening in the world, and it was kind of like stressful and terrifying. But then it was eclipsed by so many other things that have happened this year, such that like people, like if you tell someone, oh yeah, like remember when we had a war earlier this year, like people might not even remember this thing because we had this armed conflict with Iran. We had the impeachment proceedings for a sitting president in the United States. And then we had people fully beginning to process the global pandemic that was COVID-19. And then on top of that, we also had the collapse of the OPEC plus coalition between 
largely Saudi Arabia and Russia, and you had the stress on oil markets, which then feeds into debt capital markets with the US. And so that's all even before we started seeing multi-million in number unemployment claims here in the United States as we chose to shut down the US economy in order to curtail this crisis. And so each of those things in and of themselves would have been a fairly noteworthy event in financial markets, but all of them kind of happened one after another after another, and it kind of just felt like this unending barrage of the world falling apart. And so it's like within this backdrop that all the people in global markets are trying to do their jobs, trying to service their clients. And then on top of that, as we are dealing with and navigating through all of these delicate situations, the firm begins to move people to BCP sites and we begin moving to this work from home that we're all now working under, which if you had asked anyone within the division if this was even possible, we would have just thought that this was madness, right? Like there was no real regulatory framework for people trading remotely within the global markets division in rates. Like that was just not a thing that was allowed. But necessity required that we figure this out as a firm. And I think that all of the people who worked on that effort did a phenomenal job in pulling that together. So on top of all of these things that people within the global markets division were already dealing with, you have a number of tragic events happening in the United States where African-Americans are being killed for under completely avoidable circumstances. Um, So you have the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, where he's running through a nearby neighborhood and two members of that community kill him. And then you have the killing of Breonna Taylor, where police officers are serving a no-knock warrant. Her boyfriend thinks that it's a home invasion. He fires on these police officers and then calls 911 as his partner is bleeding out and police officers stand outside of his home. And then you also have, obviously, the killing of George Floyd just on the street. And... I I think for me personally, and for a lot of the members of the Black community here at Goldman Sachs, these things are just extremely difficult for us to process. And so you'll be here trying to show up, trying to be your best work self, and then at times you don't even know if it matters, right? You're sitting in a Zoom call and you're talking about the thing that you're talking about, you're trying to service your clients, but then there's this backdrop and this like cloud hanging over you about all of the other things that are happening in the world. And you just don't know if you really care about bonds at that moment in time. We talk about bringing your whole self to work, but you know, two problems with that statement these days. One is we're not, we're not going to the office and two, bringing your whole self to work with the anguish and the pain that you're describing almost makes it impossible to work. So how, how do you, how, how have you tried to get through and, and sort of survive, bring your A-game in the middle of that environment? Or is it impossible? It's tricky. So like on the one hand, and obviously this is unhealthy and I'm trying to do better about this. I think there was a point in time during all of this where personally, I love the work that I do. I find it fascinating. I find it fulfilling. At some times in my life, it feels like the thing that makes sense and the place where I have control and can be my best, most effective self. And so one of the things, particularly with the work from home situation where you don't have to deal with commuting and you don't have friends that you're meeting in the evening, 
it becomes very easy to either throw yourself completely into your work and then burn out. Or on the other end, you feel like you can't really focus on your job because there are so many other things that are happening that touch you personally and also touch the other members of your community. And the other thing that is difficult, obviously, like working in the financial services industry, where one of the things that we work on is wealth creation for our clients. It's very difficult to deal with that and square your particular privilege and experiences with the things that are happening to other people who look like you. And so even if you personally are not being affected by these things because you're sitting in your comfortable home in Manhattan or in whatever part of the world you happen to be in, like these things are still happening to people who look like you, people who look like your brothers and sisters and colleagues and friends and family members. And seeing this is just hard. And on the one hand, I think that media is fantastic in that it allows people to appreciate these things in a way that they otherwise would not. Like, I don't think that the U.S. civil rights movement would have happened if it weren't for the evening news segments showing Black peaceful protesters being beaten and hosed in the middle of the street and having dogs set on them. Like, on the one hand, I think it's extremely powerful and extremely vital that we are able to see these things and share these things as they happen. But on the other hand, it's extremely difficult to watch all of these things. And there's just like this heaviness to it that is extremely difficult to cope with. And so like, it's in the context of all of these things that you're seeing on Instagram and all of the news that you read before you log in and the work, log in and start work every day. And then you have to figure out, am I going to turn that off and do my job and be my best self at Goldman Sachs? Or am I going to let myself feel this thing that potentially means that my productivity is going to just be non-existent because I'm just going to be sitting looking at an email that I'm trying to write and thinking about the fact that someone was on a man's throat for eight minutes and 46 seconds and thinking about all of the people who saw that happen and did nothing, like at least three police officers. But if you think about it, then the fact that this happened in a very public space, how many people watched this person die? And that is a very difficult thought to have in a Zoom conversation with your team when someone is talking about something that is clearly important to your business, but not necessarily a thing that you can focus on in that moment in time. So, so that dynamic that you described led you to write an email recounting your own story over the past few decades, and not, not, not just your story, but a broader story. Have you ever shared your personal experiences with race at work before in any, in any sense like this? Yeah. So I try to be an ally and advocate. I am not necessarily a feelings person. And so many of my experiences are so personal for me and so emotional for me that I don't necessarily feel comfortable having that conversation, or at least I did not until fairly recently. And to answer something like the related question as to why I wrote the email that I did, at the end of the day, I did a thing that I found to be profoundly uncomfortable, not because 
I wanted to do this thing, but because I was hearing from so many analysts and associates across our organization that they wanted to be able to have these conversations, but they didn't feel that they were able to do that. They didn't know how to bring up the fact that they like cried for several hours and then tried to show up for work or sat in a room while their siblings cried, thinking about the fact that any of these people that died could have been them and trying to have these conversations with their family members, trying to make sense of it themselves and trying to get the people around them to understand why they are upset or angry or how much it would mean to them if other people within the firm were to just reach out and ask them how they were doing. And then also, I think on a slightly selfish note, because so many of the conversations that I begin with, because I have like a fairly good relationship with my colleagues, begin with them checking in. It's not always clear how to have the real conversation, right? Like someone can say, hey, how's it going? And you say, yeah, it's fine. Or it's okay. It's not always clear that that's an invitation to have a real conversation. And it's not always clear that that's an invitation to have as weighty of a conversation as systemic racism and inequality and violence in the United States. Like that conversation is a bummer. Like that's not a conversation that I get excited to talk about, except to the extent that it gets other people excited about fighting this injustice with me. But it's one of those things that, you drop in a conversation and then everyone goes quiet, right? Like it's not, Oh, Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Like I'm just coping with the fact that people are being murdered for no reason. Like that's not, that's not an easy conversation to have, but it is a critical conversation to have if people really are going to bring their whole selves to work. And if we are actually going to build a community that supports all of the people coming from all of the different places that they come in order to be here at Goldman Sachs. So the first line of your email is to everyone has asked me some variant of how's it going over the past month. I've probably lied or lack the words to articulate it fully, but I'm giving it a shot. Very powerful opener. You've gotten to this, but what what were you hoping to, to accomplish by writing, by writing the note? I mean, I think part of it was me needing to process my feelings about the situation. Um, I was a wreck this past weekend. I spent most of it in bed. I kept thinking, oh, I want to go out. And then I kept thinking, I can't. I don't know where I would go. I don't know what I would do. I don't know how to process this feeling that I have. But one, I felt that someone needed to say something in a way that would speak to the actual experience of the people of color here at Goldman Sachs and the black experience of people here at Goldman Sachs. And I also, for myself, needed to figure out how to articulate this just hole that I had been feeling inside of me for the past several days. Um, And there, there are a number of people who reached out to me afterwards who had asked me how it was going that very day who were not expecting the response that they ended up receiving, but who then still thanked me for being honest about it. And 
this is not, I, I think if it were not this particular moment in time with the current political climate and administration, if it were not the particular moment in time within Goldman Sachs with our leadership, both making bold stances on diversity and also challenging us to hold them accountable. And if I hadn't seen leadership from other people, both at the analyst level and at the partner level within the firm, just speaking to what it was that they were feeling at the time, like I don't think that I would have been able to send that email. Certainly not this like extremely personal, soul-bearing, crack-yourself-open sort of missive to my colleagues, right? Because one of the things that was going through my mind is my job is to be a manager of risk. And so the thing that people need to be able to do is to trust my judgment. And so I need to be quantitative and I need to be data-driven and I need to be solid. And so for me to have this depth of emotion and to show that to my colleagues and to be vulnerable in this way, this isn't a thing that I do necessarily even with my very close friends, unfortunately, which I think was probably part of the reason why I felt so terrible because you're living at home in isolation and you feel like all of these things are happening around you and you don't really know how to deal with them. And so it was within that backdrop that I just felt that I had to say something and I didn't really know what to say. It's an email that I started at least six times in six different ways. And then I thought, what is it about these events that has been triggered in me? And what is it about the path that I have taken in my life that caused me to process these events in the way that I did? And how can I get people to feel and understand that? at least on some level. So one of, the, one of the things we've heard time and time again in the last several days and weeks is that sharing those stories, like sharing your stories, is, is difficult and courageous, but it makes a huge difference for people. As, as a senior person, as a managing director, as a leader, your story resonates with lots of people uh, beyond your immediate network. So share a little bit of that story now with the audience who hasn't necessarily read your email. You write about coming to America in 1990 with your family, and that was obviously a fraught moment in uh, American uh, racial uh, history. How did, you know, Rodney King, how, how did that have an impact on you as, as a new arrival here in America? I think it all just comes together in this pot of... When I think about the Black experience in the United States, and I think about a lot of my friends, a lot of my colleagues, I feel like a lot of us carry this racial trauma that we don't necessarily know how to deal with. And so sometimes we end up getting cracked open and we're like sobbing our eyes out about it. Sometimes we make extremely dark jokes about the terrible things that happen to people who look like us. But there's just this long, painful catalog of things that have happened, things that we've seen happen to our friends, things that have happened in near recent history in this country and in other countries that we hail from. And we're all just processing that. And on the one hand, it builds a certain resiliency and it makes us the people that we are. But on the other hand, it just gives you this almost pit inside you and this anger and this sadness that you don't really know how to deal with sometimes. So you, you went and cataloged, I mean, 
after Rodney King, some of the just tremendous injustices over the decades that you've lived in America and, and seen and witnessed. And uh, the list is inexcusably long, horrifically long. Seeing it all written down for me, at least, elicits the rage that you must be feeling for me. I can't, I can't, I can't completely see the world through your eyes, of course, but the, the exhaustion of the repetition of them. Why, in your view, why are we still here in, in the year 2020? Why have we made so little progress? So I think a lot of it is structural, and obviously we don't have enough time. But I think when, when I try to conceptualize race in the United States, I think that there are two things that drive the current situation and allow these conditions to persist. I think, one, when you think about the founding of the United States, the United States as a country was founded in such a way as to deny citizenship explicitly to certain groups of people. And it was also designed as a country in such a way as to make large structural changes difficult. And so it's within that backdrop that the fight for civil rights has a very long history in the United States. But I feel like, one, a lot of these things were not inevitable, and it was entirely possible that the United States could have reconciled with the South and that slavery would have persisted for even longer. It's entirely possible that we wouldn't have dealt with some of the Jim Crow racism that fed into the civil rights movement and some of the segregation. And we still haven't dealt with a lot of that. And so when you think about the United States as a country structurally, there's just a lot of the history and construction of this country that has led to these injustices. But then also when you think about it on a personal level, the way that I think about the world is that every person has a set of people that they view as people and that they genuinely care about and are genuinely good people too. And so when people talk about how they believe that everyone is a fundamentally good person, when people talk about how they've had positive interactions with Amy Cooper and they couldn't have imagined her being racist and she's a card-carrying liberal and she probably voted for Obama and all of these things, I think for every person, there is a set of people that they view as people and they are naturally inclined to treat those people with a certain level of respect and dignity and advocacy. And to the extent that that group doesn't include women, it doesn't include members of the transgender or LGBT community, doesn't include black people, those people are not going to advocate for those groups. And when those groups are in a position of disadvantage, their ability to advocate for themselves is just limited. And so you're ending up in this situation where those groups can't really do it on their own because it's not really a problem of theirs. It's a problem of whether or not people are willing to acknowledge their personhood and humanity. And so until more people who are not members of that group are also involved in this fight and view those people as people and see these injustices and get as angry and upset and saddened by them and have their hearts break, we're not going to be able to move forward as a country because it is quite easy as an individual in this country to separate your well-being from the well-being of other people. I am a Black person living in the United States, but I am also a managing director at Goldman Sachs living in New York City in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Like, 
there are so many ways that my life could have gone differently. And there are so many people who have different experiences than I have. And so I could just say, oh, well, most of the time I'm not going to have these negative interactions with law enforcement anymore. And most of the time I'll dress in a particular way. And most of the time I'll be around people and kind of feel safe. And so this isn't really my problem. And I think when our society doesn't treat it as a problem for everyone in our society, that a citizen can be killed extrajudiciously, it's very hard for us to make progress because the people who are suffering for this from this don't have the ability to fix it because if they had the ability to fix it, then they wouldn't be suffering from it by construction. So you, you, you talked about encounters with the police. You had your own encounter with the police. You wrote about this in the note, 2011, you leave in a ball game in Chicago. Talk a little bit about what that was like. Someone gets stopped a professional just going home. It was an extremely difficult experience for me, not because it was my worst interaction with law enforcement, but because it was an experience that hit me in a moment when I was just starting to feel good about myself and my professional prospects and my position in my community and just like my starting to feel like a big deal, right? And obviously that was my lack of humility I was like, oh yeah, like I went to the school and I have this job and I'm a trader and I get paid a certain amount of money and people who know me respect me and think that I'm smart. And obviously that should transfer into all of the interactions that I have. And then I have this moment of realization where I am in extremely casual clothing in a neighborhood in Chicago that doesn't have a lot of black people. And I understand that the way that I view myself and the way that my colleagues and friends from college view me is not the way that these two law enforcement officers viewed me in that moment. And there wasn't the same level of, oh, well, this person is smart. We will give them the benefit of the doubt. There was the, we have reports of a black male in this area who is stealing from homes. You are a black male in this area. Clearly, you are the person who has perpetrated this crime. So you close the email by saying, instead of reaching out to you, you directly, people could best use their effort and their initiative in other ways. What are some of the ways that you think people outside the Black community can really help as, as true allies, not just today when it's, it's sort of fashionable to do so, but, but in the months and, and years ahead? I think the two most impactful things would be giving of time and money and having genuine relationships with people of different backgrounds. Like when you think about racial inequity in this country, there's a long history of it, not just in terms of policing and not just in terms of like which institutions people have access to, but also when you think about the way that our country is structured and where people live. So many areas in the United States are either predominantly white or predominantly something else. And they're, isn't really that much integration. And that's part of the reason why it's very easy for people to depersonalize the experiences of other people. I imagine there are a number of my colleagues who don't have meaningful relationships with people of color. They don't have meaningful relationships with Black people. Or even if they do have them here at Goldman Sachs, they won't necessarily have them in their actual communities where they go back. Like several of the buildings that I lived in in Manhattan 
I have been the only black resident of that building, or there have been more black doormen in the building than residents living in that building, buildings with hundreds of people living in them. And so I think until people are having these genuine relationships and until people are feeling that this is a fight that belongs to them as well, I think it's going to be very difficult for us to see change. But I'm very positive based on what I've seen and based on the responses that I've gotten from the firm and the hundreds of emails and messages and notes and encouragement and people saying that they are having these conversations on their teams. I am cautiously optimistic about this moment in time and both within the firm and also within the United States, but we're all going to have to keep doing it. Thanks for joining us, Fred. Totally appreciate you sharing your story and um, I appreciate your optimism in the wake of so much terrible, horrible news around the world. So just appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's episode. Hope everyone has a good weekend and we'll be back next week. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, June 4th, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.